Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on our fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, 89.1 KGOH Colby, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KJDM, and our flagship station where it all started, 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And um, today we're having um, answering questions that people have sent in. Um, Danetta calls it Ask a Priest. I call it Stump the Chump to see if, you're, if you can stump the chump here with a question that I can't answer. Um, usually I can because all I have to do is go to the catechism in the Bible and those questions are already answered for us. So all I don't really have to answer them, I just have to do the homework. So let's see what we got here. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of questions we got here today. The first one concerns the afterlife. And it says, here's the question. For as long as I remembered, I believe that the moment of our death, our soul separates from our physical human body and goes on immediately to be judged, called the particular judgment. That's true. That's right. And then it is only at the final resurrection will our physical bodies rise and be united with our soul or our spirit in the last judgment, the general judgment. That is also true. So our writer questioner says, here's where I become confused. I always thought we would all become physical once again with our soul spirit, even though our body would be transformed into a perfect glorified immortal state. However, in reference to catechism, the Catechism, paragraph 999, I read that we will be spiritual and not physical after it is all said and done. Is this correct? Well, not really. Um, here, let's look at what the Catechism says in paragraph 999. So bear with me. The heading is, how do the dead rise? And so there's, what is rising? Who will rise? And then paragraph 999, how does this happen? And um, we read about this, I think, um, probably more than anything in, um, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it says, how? Christ is raised with his own body. And then there's a reference there to um, chapter Luke chapter 24, verse 39, when Jesus appears to the apostles and says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Okay, so Jesus, when he, re when he presents himself to the apostles, he's really going to extremes to show him, to show that, look, I'm not a puff of smoke, I'm not a ghost, I have a physical body. Okay, and it says, so it says, Christ is raised with his own body, see my hands and my feet, that is I myself. But he did not return to an earthly life. So to him, all of them will rise again with their own bodies, which they now bear. But Christ will change our mortal bodies to be like his glorious body into a spiritual body. Now, so and then, then again, that's a, that's a reference to um, the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians 15, like I said a minute ago. Now, it says, then below it says in the next, in the next piece, again, this is from 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what, what, with what kind of body do they come? You foolish man, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body which is to be, but a bare kernel. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. The dead will be raised imperishable, for this perishable nature must put on the imperishable, and this mortal nature put on immortality. What this kind of comes down to, and it's kind of a, um, I don't know where I came across this, but it's kind of been my insight for the month. And that is, we get so accustomed to things being broken that we don't understand what they're supposed to look like when they're fixed, okay? And kind of what I mean by that simply is this. We get so accustomed to living under the, the, the conditions and the consequences of sin that we forget or, or we, you know, we just become numb to the fact that there's something much better. And so the body that we have now, the physical body that we have, you know, that um, does all the good things that it does for us, you know, it enables us to learn and experience the world and come, you know, the, the, through our senses, we come to faith, we come to know there is a God and he created us and, and all these good things. But this body is living under the consequences of mortal sin. And so the body that we're supposed to have is the body that Jesus had when he rose from the dead. 
you know, that's the glorified body. That's what we're looking for. And so um, when, whenever, it, whenever it talks about a spiritual body, again, that was a, that was a, a term used at the, at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. And um, again, it doesn't mean that we're a puff of smoke or it doesn't mean that we're, you know, like Casper the Friendly Ghost or something like that that we have this physical glorified body. You know, again, going back to the Gospel of St. Luke, when Jesus appears to the apostles, you know, he says, you look at my hands and feet, you know, this is really me. And then he says, have you got anything around here to eat? And it says, they gave him a piece of baked fish, which he took and ate in their presence. Puffs of smoke do not eat, okay? And so the, the, what the resurrection stories are trying to show us is that at one and the same time, the body, the, the resurrected body, the glorified body that we will have, will have some aspects of the body that we have now. It'll be some kind of a, 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 of a you know, physical being, but it's also spiritual, you know, because you might notice the same body of Jesus that ate the piece of fish also kind of appeared and disappeared at will. Um, he also passed through locked doors as if they weren't even there. And so again, the, the, what, I think what we have to be, be clear on is that the resurrected body, you know, it will be a physical body in the sense of, you know, it'll, there'll be some aspects to it that will be like what we have now, but as a glorified body, there will be other aspects to it that we can only just barely imagine that are, you know, sketched out for us a little bit in the resurrection stories of Jesus. And so, again, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the question, you know, kind of asks a pretty good question, is that at one and the same time, you know, the, I, I guess probably the better term to use is the glorified body, because the glorified body is both spiritual and physical. Um, just like right now, our body, you know, our being, we are spiritual beings and physical beings, we kind of tend to default and tilt more towards the physical, I think. But the glorified body, you know, will be the perfect balance between spiritual and physical, um, unlike kind of what we have now. So hopefully that kind of answers that question. Um, the next one here, this is a little kind of a tough one as well. And I guess the only thing we can do is just hit it head on. It says, hello, how do my husband and I respond to a family member who is wanting to bring his boyfriend around our little children for family gatherings? We understand that we need to be kind to everyone and that we're all children of God. But my husband and I do not want our family members implying to our young children that acting on, homose on a homosexual fantasy is OK. We are conflicted. Well, no, you're not conflicted. What the deal is, you've been blackmailed. It's called emotional blackmail. And people that are living in really disordered um, lifestyles, um, they, they're very good at it. Um, they, they pick it up from the culture. I don't think they go to blackmail classes, but they pick it up from the culture. And here's a couple of examples, things that I've heard over the years. You know, factor out the homosexual thing for a minute. Mom, dad, you know, here's their son. This is my honey, Lulabelle. And, um, and, you know, we're going to go down to Cabo San Lucas and, um, you know, where we've already moved in together. And then we're going to go down to Cabo San Lucas this summer and get married in a destination wedding. And the mom and the dad go, um, well, we didn't raise you that way. Um, we raised you to be chaste until you got married. And then when you get married, you will receive the sacrament of matrimony in the church, you know, and so on. Yeah, yeah. But in college, they told us that that's just all a bunch of superstition, a bunch of nonsense. This is what we're going to do. And. If you don't come down and celebrate with us, you will never see us again and you will never see your grandchildren. You know, that's what these people do. OK, um, it's it's a you know, it's it's just a, um, a, a tremendous. Um, again, it's just it's blackmail, plain and simple. And um, St. Paul kind of warns us about this in letter to the Romans in chapter two, chapter one or chapter two. I'm going to look it up here real quick. St. Paul tells us about people living in perverse disordered lifestyles and then, again, the, the, the effect that it has in, their, in, in the way they deal with the rest of the world. And so this is in, um, in chapter 1, verse 28. And it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God handed, over them, handed them over to their indiscerning mind to do what is improper. Okay, now, they are filled with every form of wickedness, evil, greed, and malice full of envy, murder, rivalry, treachery, and spite. Rivalry, treachery, and spite. Don't forget that. 
They are gossips and scandal mongers. They hate God. They are insolent, haughty, boastful, ingenious in their wickedness, and rebellious towards their parents. Hmm, rebellious towards their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know the just decree of God, that all who practice such things deserve death, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, that's where St. Paul is talking about the, the, the and, and, and this is, starts in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and to the end of the chapter, where he's talking about the, the gay community there in Rome and the, the, the kind of stuff that they were involved with. But the thing of it is, see, the part that never gets talked about is people just say, well, love is love, and who are we to judge? And as long as two people love each other, what difference does it make? Well, it seems like it makes a pretty big difference because, again, when I look at people who have engaged in these disordered lifestyles, you know, again, whether it's a man and a woman living together outside of marriage or two men attempting something that they think looks like marriage or whatever and so on, Again, just you look at some of the, the, the words that St. Paul uses here, you know, gossip, scandal mongers, rivalry, treachery, spite, things like that. When you look at this thing, when, when you look at the, the idea of, you know, this, this whoever it is, the, you know, the, some mem- family member and his husband, you know, that's kind of a joke in and of itself, um, wanting to come around, you know, with their little, with, to the little kids. You know, this is a very aggressive, not even passive aggressive, this is a very aggressive tactic by which, you know, people show up and say, okay, you know, yeah, we are living a disordered lifestyle and we are going to push it in your face and you will accept it. And if you don't accept it, we have a whole bunch of names to call you. We will call you a homophobe. We will call you a hate monger. We will call you closed minded and things like that. Never mind the fact that when people re- resort to calling names, what they're admitting is that they just lost the argument because they know they don't have a logical, reasonable, cogent you know, line of thought to present to, to say no. You know, this guy and you know, me with this other male calling him my husband, this is a good thing and you should celebrate with us and this is why you should do it and they give you their reasons. They don't do it because they can't do it. Instead, what do they refer to? Spite, treachery, rivalry, you know, things like this that St. Paul warns us about. So what do you do? Um, I think what I would do is just that if I know they're going to be at some kind of a gathering, I just wouldn't go. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, with, with all this transgender nonsense. When you have a when you have a guy who is a biological male, but decides he wants to you know, be on the women's swim team so he can win easier. What I would do if I was all those other women is when the, when they you know shot the the starting gun, I'd let that guy dive into the pool and I would just stand up on those little diving platform thingies they have and just let him swim to his heart's content and just not join in with them. Let him go, you know, if that's what you want to do. Well, it's kind of the same thing. You know, the, these people have no business and have no right to foist all this kind of stuff on, especially on little kids. You know, if other, if other adults want to go along with it, you know, nothing you can do about that. Again, I question the judgment of it, but, you know, let them go. Um, but but, it, but I, w- I would just, if between you and your husband, if, if you know these people are going to be at some kind of a family gathering or something like that, you know, implying that acting up on their homosexual fantasy is okay, which I think is a very good way to put it, um, I, w- I just wouldn't go. And it's kind of the same thing. I've been through this many times with parents. Um, you have, you know, mom and dad, you know, but, you know, Catholic parents, and their son or daughter is going to get married, you know, to some other person. And, you know, again, let's just assume it's heterosexual marriage, so it's at least salvageable at some point. But if you have a, you know, a man and a woman, a young man and a young woman, and they're going to go get married in the Rose Garden in the park, or they're going to go get married at the Happy Clappy Gospel Good Time Hour or something like that, and um, and then you know the the parents go, well, should we go to the wedding? I mean, after all, she is our daughter, he is our son, and so on. Um, I've answered this question many many times. And what's on the chopping block here are two things. There's your relationship with your child, which is very important. There's also your personal character, integrity, and morals, which I would suggest is even more important than the relationship with your child. And so what happens is, is if you go to this, to this wedding, then you're going to sacrifice your character and integrity and morals. That's going to go away for the sake of, you know, maintaining this, this relationship. 
On the other hand, if you say, well, have a nice wedding, we'll send you a card or, you know, maybe we'll we'll come to the we'll come to the reception or something. Um, but we're not going to come to the wedding because going to the wedding implies that you support the marriage and so on. And so you don't do it. OK, well, then. You know, yeah, the relationship with, with the child will be strained. There's no question about that. But at least you have your character, your integrity, your integrity and your morals about you. And, um, and then you can work on salvaging the relationship with the kid later. Um, that's kind of, you know, my advice. Some folks take it. Some folks work with it different. You, you know, these are difficult questions to, to answer. Um, but that's, you know, kind of my take on whenever you have people that are in these disordered lifestyles and stuff like that. You know, just because they want to engage in a disordered lifestyle doesn't imply an obligation on your part to go along with it. You don't have to. Okay. Now, here's another one. It says, I've been considering Jesus' words regarding lust. If a man looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart, and regarding the fifth commandment and anger. My question is this. Okay, the fifth commandment is you shall not kill, and, um, and the idea that, um, that, um, that being angry someone violates that commandment, because that's what Jesus says in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's my question is this. I really enjoy a good mystery, books, shows, whatever. I love a good mystery, but it is difficult to find a mystery without it being a murder mystery. I've had to give up several authors recently because their work just, work just gets more and more violent. Is reading about fictional murder sinful? Um, I don't think so, but I think at the same time, you're kind of onto something there. What happens with all this violence? I mean, I think it's, it's kind of um, telling. If you go back and look at a, um, at, a, at a TV show, at a Western, look at like an old, like Bonanza or The Big Valley, The Rifleman, something like that, you know. Some of you that are younger won't know what that is, but basically those are, those are old Western TV shows. And whenever, you know, you'd have, you'd have the big shootout, you know, and, you know, some guy would get, they would show him on screen, he'd get shot and he'd grab his belly and, and keel over, you know, or someone would get shot on the horse and they'd fall off the horse and so on. And, and so the thing is, is, you know, you would, you would see that and you would go, okay, I heard the gun go boom. I saw the guy grab his stomach and keel over. He got shot. You might notice anymore, that's not good enough. Anymore in the movies that we have now, they have, when they show someone getting shot, they have to show half of their head getting blown away. Or if they see someone, if you so show someone getting shot, you know, they have to show a big puff of, you know, of like a red cloud of blood, you know, getting blown out of their, out of their chest or something like that. Because what's happened, you know, as time goes on, it's, it's kind of like any kind of an addiction that, you know, the first, the first time you try the drug or the alcohol or whatever, you know, you kind of have this high, this exhilaration, but the next time it takes more and more and more and more. And I think it's the same way, you know, it's kind of like the, this listener has noted that, you know, as you know, have to give up some authors because their work just gets more and more violent. Well, of course it gets more and more violent because it's not going to be enough anymore just to say that, you know, so-and-so got shot or whatever, again, or to show it on film, you know, you have to show all the gore, you know, you have to show the, you know, the brain matter being splattered on the wall or whatever the case might be. And so I think that probably like anything else, we just have to use some, some judgment here. Um, I know that, um, you know, I, I get Amazon Prime and I just am just so remarkable how you can sit there and scan through literally hundreds and hundreds of movies and everything. And it's just like none of these are worth watching. Um, there's been a couple times I've, you know, tuned into a couple of them, some Westerns, you know, and things like that. And again, the more the more recently made ones, they're not content, again, just to show, you know, hey, man, the bad guy got shot. No, they have to show him getting blown to pieces, you know, and show all the gore and everything's afterwards. Some of this, I think, comes from the video games. I, I've never played these things myself, but I've seen kids play them and so on. And it's the same thing. They'll show the guy going along with, you know, some kind of a rifle. And then when they sh show him shooting the guy off in the distance, again, there's this red cloud, you know, that appears. This pink cloud is the, you know, the guy's lung gets, a, you know, gets vaporized as, you know, he gets shot in the chest or whatever. And so again, you know, the, this is, you know, part of the, the, of the, the glorification of violence, you know, that we have to make things more violent. I mean, it's almost, it's almost like a, it's almost like pornography. It's like a pornographic um, um, display of violence. 
and that, that it has to, if we don't have, somehow enough, if you don't have that, you're not going to get the full experience. Well, all I, I think all we have to do is just look at, see, look where we've been and where we're going and see that, you know, that probably, it probably, we're probably not on the best route right now. We're in pretty bad shape. And so I think that um, this lady that wrote this in, I think she's got a pretty good insight here as she sees that, you know, having to just give up on several authors because their work just gets so, so violent. You know, find a different hobby, you know, grow flowers or something. I don't know. You know, find something else to do with your time because, again, a lot of this so-called entertainment that we have now is anything but entertainment and um, probably just best just to leave it alone. So um, we'll kind of take a little break here at this point. Again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. I am the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina, as well as the, um, the, the, the rector here at Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina. And you are listening to the Double-Edged Sword program here on our fine family of Catholic radio stations of KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KGOH 89.1 Colby, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina and KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And here on the, 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 the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. We're going to take a little break right now and um, let you listen to the folks that make this program possible. And we'll be right back. Hey gang, we are back. I am Father Fred Gatchett and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on our fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations. KMDG 105.7 Hayes, 89.1 KGOH Colby, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, 101.7 KJDM Lindsberg Salina, and our flagship station where Divine Mercy Radio got started out in Hayes, America many years ago, 88.1 Hayes. And here on the the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture as we take advantage of these fantastic Catholic radio waves um, to dig into topics a little bit deeper. You know, we're going to kind of grab the bull by the horns here and um, talk about stuff in more detail than like I could in a Sunday sermon because I have more time and you have more time. And so hopefully if you're driving in your car or listening in your home or whatever, you know, we have some time to, to, to look at these things and talk about these things together. So again, this week we're doing the Ask a Priest um, edition of Double, of Double-Edged Sword, where um, Donetta gets questions that have been sent to the radio station, and I try to answer them. Again, she calls it Ask a Priest, I call it Stump the Chump. And so the old chump here is going to try to answer another question. Um, this last question here... It's kind of involved and kind of detailed, and that's why I saved it for the end so we'd have the time to dig into it. And um, it, it's, it also leads into another question that I, that I heard er, earlier this week um, regarding marriage and so on. So we'll, we'll just kind of, kind of take them on both. So here it is. It says, good morning. My inquiry has many parts. And um, there's, so there's three parts to this question. And I think what I'm going to do is I just read the whole thing, and then we're going to go back and answer it piece by piece. So bear with me. Here's the whole thing. My inquiry has many parts. My husband and I were both raised Catholic. As adults prior to meeting, we strayed away from the Catholic Church. After our courtship over 10 years ago, we got married by a pastor in a Christian church, the Assemblies of God. We came back to our Catholic roots not too long ago. Point one. Next piece. Despite both of us having made our first communion, I've been confirmed as well. I found out that we could not receive communion because we were not married in the Catholic Church. If you could explain that, I would greatly appreciate it. I'll do that in a second. The third piece. Also, I was told that we did not need to go to confession because it would not do us any good. I find this hard to believe since Jesus himself said, let the children come to me. Why would my husband and I be omitted from receiving our Lord's forgiveness despite our covenant under him? I hope this all makes sense and pray you can answer these questions. Thank you and God bless you. All right, so here we go. Here's the first piece. I'll reread that first piece and we'll talk about this. My husband and I were both raised Catholic. As adults prior to meeting, we strayed away from the Catholic Church. After our courtship over 10 years ago, we got married by a pastor in the Christian Church, the Assemblies of God. 
we came back to our Catholic roots long ago. Now, the question is, how is it, you know, she goes, despite us having made our first communion and confirmation, I found out we could not receive communion because we're not married in the Catholic Church. If you could explain that, I would greatly appreciate it. Okay, here's the deal. First of all, in the mind of Jesus himself, marriage is a sacrament, okay? It's not a covenant. It's not, I mean, there are covenant aspects to it. It's not an agreement. It's not a contract. It's a sacrament. And we know that, number one, the church has always attached great import to Jesus' presence at the marriage feast at Cana in John chapter 2. Um, we also know that in, for example, in, in, in Mark chapter 10, I think it is, when Jesus is giving the teaching on divorce, the, you know, some people come up and say, can a man divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever? And Jesus says, well, we're all good Jews here. What does Moses say? Well, Moses said that he can write her a decree of divorce and send her packing. And Jesus says, yeah, Moses led, gave you that command because of your hardness of hearts. But in the beginning, see now Jesus goes back before Moses to the book of Genesis. And then Jesus quotes the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God made them male and female. And the, therefore the man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and the two become one. They are therefore no longer two, but one flesh. And then G that's from the book of Genesis. And Jesus pipes in with his own words, therefore, Whatever God has joined, men must not separate. Okay, so here's the deal. Marriage in the Catholic, in the, in the view of the Catholic Church, is a sacrament. In the Assembly of God Church, it is not. And in fact, through all of Protestant land, marriage is not a sacrament. They call it a covenant. They call it an alliance. They call it a, oh, there's, what's the other word they call it? Anyway, um, anything but a sacrament. I don't know why that is. My guess is, is that, um, again, when you have most of Protestantism being driven by popular vote and you have people going, well, wait a minute, um, we want to say we believe in the Bible, but, you know, this marriage till death do us part sometimes just don't work out and we want out of it. And so in Protestant land says, says well, if it's not a sacrament, I suppose we can do that. And so the, 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 the first part of the answer to the question is, is that the reason why you can't receive communion in the Catholic Church is because if you are both baptized Catholics and you were married outside the church, then you've separated yourself and you have to come back. The way you do that is by going to your local parish, doing some marriage preparation, getting all this stuff figured out and everything, so that then you can go, and again, it's always a very simple thing. You don't, a lot, a lot of times, people get scared away from this because they think they have to have another big wedding ceremony. You don't. I've done these things in the sacristy before, okay, where you just have the, the man and the woman and a couple of witnesses, and they just come in and repeat their vows. I, Billy Bob, take you, Little Bell, to be my wife. I, Little Bell, take you, Billy Bob, to be my husband, and so on. You repeat your vows, and then, you, you know, to, to use the, the common term, they talk about getting the marriage blessed. Well, no, what you did was you received the sacrament of matrimony, okay? And so the way these things get fixed is you do the marriage preparation sometime, you know, before even the day of, you go to confession and confess having, you know, lived outside the sacrament for however long. Then you receive the sacrament and then you're off and running, okay? Now it says, I was told we do not need to go to confession because it won't do any good. Well, in a certain sense, it won't. Because again, you know, Jesus basically says that, and you know, St. Paul says the same thing, that if we're having sexual relations outside of marriage, it's either if the if if the if the one of the parties is not married, it's fornication. If they are married, it's adultery, both of which are mortal sins. And you can't receive communion if you're conscious of mortal sin. And if you're gonna go to confession, if you're if someone's in one of these irregular marriages and they go, okay, well, I'm gonna go to confession now, well, fine. You know, you went to confession, you confessed you know, the illicit sexual acts and so forth that took place up to that confession. And then you go to communion in a state of grace, well and good. Then you go back home and then pick up the illicit union again. You're right back where you started. And so again, that's what that's why what this person says when it says it won't do you any good. Now it says, I find this hard to believe since Jesus himself said, let the children come to me. Um, that's not a, that's not a, um, um, 
that's called a non sequitur. It means that particular line of reasoning doesn't follow. If we, if we find ourselves on the outs with the Lord because of our behavior, we have to repent, okay? Jesus hasn't turned anybody away. We turn ourselves away whenever we decide that we can, you know, kind of write our own rules and so on. Again, you know, the idea that marriage is a sacrament, you know, Jesus is the one that came up with that. And a lot of people don't like that idea because if it is a sacrament, it's till death do us part. One man and one woman, faithful till death. Now, suppose I know someone's going to bring up, well, what about the annulments and so on? I know on previous installments of Double-Edged Sword, you know, we've talked about annulments ad nauseum. But let just, you know, to do a really brief review here, an annulment is not a divorce, okay? What an annulment says is, was there a valid celebration of the sacrament of matrimony here? And, you know, did when this couple entered into this agreement, into this sacrament with each other, did they do so in a way that the church understands matrimony? And if they didn't, and if you can prove that, then you can be granted an annulment, which would then free you to then attempt marriage again and hopefully get it right this time, okay? But again, you know, the, the, this idea that, you know, if somebody strayed away from the church, they got married outside the church and so on, and then now they want to come back, it's very doable. I do it all the time. And in fact, in our day and age, these things are called convalidations, where you have, you know, somebody that, a couple that they got married, they hooked up, they lived together, they made illegitimate kids for five or six or 10 years. Then they decided, well, maybe we should go get married by the judge. So we have some legal protections here. They go get married by the judge. And then, you know, 15 years after the fact, they come and they want to get their marriage straightened out in the church. I do more of those than I do so-called traditional weddings, Okay. The traditional wedding where boy meets girl, girl meets boy, boy and girl fall in love, boy proposes marriage to girl, girl accepts the proposal, now they're fiancés, and sometime later they receive the sacrament of matrimony, and they come together as a couple. Um, those in our day and age, sad to say, are few and far between. Um, most people are foregoing marriage altogether. And um, But again, on my desk right now, I've got a file with probably about 30 cases in it of people who, again, they they got to know each other. Usually they started having children. And now, you know, a lot of times what happens is once their children kind of be first communion age and they know that they can't go to communion with their kids because they're living in mortal sin, then they want to get things straightened out, which is good. You know, it's great stuff. You know, I'm happy to help them do what I can to, to get things straightened out. And so again, usually what happens is, you know, the, the, the couple will come in, we'll have a couple of conversations about what, what um, a sacramental marriage is all about. You know, how do you expect to be any different once you receive the sacrament of matrimony than you are now? And, you know, that, that's a fruitful conversation to have. And then they'll go to confession, they'll come in, they'll re exchange their vows, and then they're, they're, then they're back in the state of grace and then they're off and running. They can go to communion as a family, and, and that's great stuff. But I think that, it, that it's important to understand here that, you know, God and the church are not running anybody off. Um, people, by their, by, their, by their behaviors and by their decisions, they take certain courses of action by which they separate themselves. And whenever they leave, whenever they separate themselves, you know, the door, the door swings both ways. Um, you can come back. Um, but it's not just a matter of showing back up and, you know, I'm going to come back, but I'm going to come back on my own terms. Um, that's what caused the problem to begin with. You know, people think they can re-engineer marriage and so forth on their own terms, and then they think they can engineer the solution on their own terms. Doesn't work that way. And so, um, I would again, I would, I would tell this listener, you know, the most important thing for you to do is to go talk to your pastor. Believe me, your pastor has dealt with situations like this before, Okay. Go talk to your pastor, tell him what the deal is, you know, tell him what, you know, what you need to do to receive the sacrament of matrimony. What the deal is, is canon law tells us is that um, baptized Catholics are bound to what's called the canonical form. And the canonical form for wedding, for receiving the sacrament of matrimony, is the couple has to exchange their vows in front of two witnesses and an ordained minister of the church, a deacon, priest, or bishop. Now, notice... This means that a Catholic wedding can take place in like 38 seconds because all you need to do is have the husband or, you know, the man and the woman 
in front of the deacon, priest, or bishop and two witnesses saying, I, Billy Bob, take you little bell to be my wife. I promise to treat you in good times and in bad, in sickness and health. I will love you on you all the days of my life. I, little bell, take you, Billy Bob, to be my husband. I will promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and health. I will love you all the days of my life. Bam, you're married. That's all there is to it. It's pretty simple. Um, you know, if people want to have rings, that's fine. If they want, you know, other little accoutrements, that's fine. But the essence of the sacrament is the couple exchanging vows in front of a deacon, priest, or bishop and two witnesses. And so, again, I hope that, um, I know that sometimes when I talk to people, they come in and one of the big anxieties that's hanging over them is they think that, oh my gosh, you know, we're going to have to send out invitations and invite all kinds of people. No, you don't. You know, it can be, a, it can and it should be, you know, a very simple ceremony. Sometimes they're done inside chapels. Sometimes they're done in the pastor's office. I mean, you know, again, the, the important thing is that the couple understands what they're doing, how they're entering into a sacramental relationship now, as opposed to a civil relationship or, you know, something that some Protestant church dreamed up, whatever that is. And that they understand that, that now this is a sacramental marriage and so it's death do us part. And so, again, I think that, um, you know, the, what this person's writing in about, about having been away from the church and then coming back, you know, having been married outside the church, um, don't despair because these things can be fixed and we do it all the time. If you go to your pastor, you go to your local parish and just explain to them what you explained here in this letter to the radio station, they're going to get it. They'll understand what's going on and um, being able to, to, to fix that, again, is, is a is a fairly simple thing to do. It takes a little bit of effort, but it's it's not that complicated. Going along with that then, like I said at the beginning of the program, there's kind of another thing that came up um, regarding marriage that, um, that people still seem to have a pretty hard time with. And um, whenever we look, for example, at the teachings on marriage in the Bible, all of our teachings on marriage in the Bible come from Jesus and St. Paul, neither of whom were married. Okay. And so on the one hand, you know, some people, I hear this all the time, well, those priests got no business telling us married people how to live because they're not married. Well, you know, Jesus and St. Paul weren't married either. And um, I think that on the one hand, you know, people, you know, people will make the specious argument that, well, if they would allow for married priests, the priests could understand better what the married people are going through. Eh, maybe so. But also by the priests not being married, we, we, you know, we have a, a unique perspective in that we can stand outside of it and see the whole thing a little bit more objectively, too. And um, sometimes that never that really never gets talked about. But with good old St. Paul here, you know, this is the thing that makes people cringe. And it's only because they don't read the whole the whole text. Um, St. Paul says here in, in Ephesians chapter five, um, I'll just read the whole thing and then we'll go back and pick it apart. St. Paul says to husbands and wives, be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice it says, be subordinate to one another. Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. He himself is the savior of the body. As the church is subordinate to Christ, so wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water and the word, that he might present himself and himself the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So also husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hates his own flesh, but rather nourishes and cherishes it even as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then good old St. Paul here quotes Genesis, just like Jesus did. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. In any case, each one of you should love his wife as himself, and his wife should respect her husband. Now, so... This is the thing that um, I always, I always. It's, there's certain kind of a, I don't know, irony to it in that this this reading gets read, you know, on Sundays. You know, it's part of the lectionary cycle, and for whatever reason, it always seems like it's a it's a woman who's reading the second reading when she has to get up there and says a reading from the letter of Saint Paul to the Ephesians. 
Be subordinate to one another. Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. For the, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, you know, and so on. And they read that, and you can see them just gagging on the words, choking on the words. Well, the thing of it is, St. Paul, for one thing, like he, there's, this, there's this Pauline theme that St. Paul talks about, and it's based in humility. And by humility, what does humility mean? Humility does not mean, humility does not mean, oh, look at me, I'm no good, I'm a piece of trash, you know, I'm just worthless, and so on. That's not humility, that's self-depreciation or self-deprecation, and um, that's not good. Humility is when we recognize everything we are and everything we have comes to us from God. That's the important thing to remember. Everything we have and everything we are comes to us from God. Now, if that's the case, you know, in all humility, St. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, this is verses 9 through 12 or so. St. Paul says, Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Okay, now... St. Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor, okay? Um, later on in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, St. Paul says, do nothing out of selfishness or vainglory, rather humbly regard others as more important than yourselves, okay? So look at, look at this, this line of thinking here. Outdo one another in showing honor. So part of the Christian life just me as a Christian and you as a Christian, whenever we're having any kind of, a, of, of an engagement, whatever that is, whether it's a casual conversation, whether we're trying to resolve you know, a difficult situation, whatever it is, there's supposed to be this holy competition between us as we're trying to outdo each other and showing honor to each other. Okay, I am going to show more respect and honor to you than you're showing to me, and you're going to try to show more honor and respect to me than I'm showing to you. All right, and again, St. Paul says, humbly regard others as more important than yourselves. Now, that's kind of in general. Then we go specifically to the situation of a married couple. St. Paul says, be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, be subordinate to one another. In other words, the husband says, yes, dear, and the wife says, yes, dear. And, you know, the two of them are supposed to be subordinate to each other out of reverence for Christ. Okay, now, listen to what, then what St. Paul says. Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. Okay, for the husband is the head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. He himself, the Savior of the body. Now, here when it says head... Um, again, this is an unfortunate translation. One of these days, even with my limited Greek and Hebrew, not that it's that great, um, there, I'm going to do the Father Fred trans, translation of the Bible. I'm going to go in and clean up some of these translation errors. I mean, they're not errors, but they're just bad. They make some bad judgments here. Um, because the, the word here for head that's used in Saint, when St. Saint Paul wrote this thing is not like you know the lump of meat that sits on top of your shoulders. And it doesn't mean head in the sense of the boss, like the head of the corporation or the, you know, the head of the, of the army or something like that. What it means here is like the source, like a fountainhead, you know, like, like the, 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 the head rivers, the headwaters of a river or something like that, where something starts. And so, again, if we look at this, we just, you know, change the translation. It says, for the husband is the source of the wife as Christ is the source of the church. Now, Again, this is a biblical reference in going back to Genesis chapter 2. Where does the woman come from? She comes from the side of the man. She is sourced out of the man. Okay, Where does the church come from? It comes from the blood and water flowing out of the side of Jesus he hung up on the cross in, in John um, chapter 19. Okay, And so, you know, again, the, what St. Paul is talking about here. He's not saying that, that, you know, the husband is the, you know, the boss over the wife and, you know, he just says, he says, jump and she says, how high? It's a biblical reference saying that, remember that the wife was sourced out of the man the way the church is sourced out of, out of, out of Jesus. Okay. And to me, I mean, that, that's a, that's a very profound, you know, um, um, image there. And it's just unfortunate that that doesn't come across in the translations. 
So you have that first piece. But then in verse 25, Jesus says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her. How did Jesus love the church? How did he hand himself over for her? He got killed on a cross for her. That's how. Okay. And so if you want to, again, this isn't, this isn't what, what St. Paul is saying. But if you want to play this stupid game of saying, well, you know, you know, who's the boss in the family? Who's the most important person in the, in the relationship? And so on. It's like, well, St. Paul's telling the wives to be subordinate to their husbands. He's telling the husbands to die for their wives. You know, who is St. Paul putting the bigger burden on? It sure as heck ain't the wives. It's not the, it's not the, not the, 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 the women, it's the men. He's telling the men to die for their wives as Christ died for the church. Okay, and so again, I think that um, when you when you look at, at the at the um, bigger um, piece of what Saint Paul is saying here, it's again it goes back to Romans twelve: outdo one another in showing honor, humbly re regard others as more important than yourselves. And within again the the, the context of the sacrament of matrimony, instead of playing this game of, you know, who, who's, the, who's the boss and, you know, who's the, the most important person, whatever, that if both the husband and the wife are trying to outdo each other in showing honor, if the wife regards the husband as more important than herself, and if the husband responds by regarding his wife as more important than himself, you know, or again, you know, again, as St. Paul says, be subordinate to one another, you know, we can see here, that um, you know any kind of any kind of accusations of misogyny or you know male superiority or something like that. That is not what it says. And in fact, if you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter three, whenever Adam and Eve uh, you eat from the tree and commit, commit commit the original sin, whenever God is you know basically explaining to them, okay, this is what you did. I had this creation put together and it was ticking like a watch, and now because of your sin, it's broken. It still limps along, but it doesn't work the way I originally planned to have it work. And so, you know, he, you know, God tells the snake, you know, because you tempted the man and the woman on your belly, you shall you crawl and so on. And then he tells the woman, you know, because, you know, you did this, you know, he says, I will greatly increase the pains of your childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Okay. So again, you know, people will look at the Bible and go, it says right in there that the husband rules over the wife. Yeah, that's what it says, all right. But notice, that wasn't God's original creation. That is a consequence of original sin. The, fact, the, the idea of the man ruling over the wife within marriage is a consequence of original sin. That's not part of God's plan. And so then whenever, you know, we when in Christian marriage, when original sin is wiped out by, by baptism and so on, then, as St. Paul says now, you know, we have the, you know, the, the true nature of what marriage is about. Outdo one another in showing honor. Humble regard your spouse is more important than yourself. Husbands and wives be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, the husband and the wife both bow down in, in humble um, submission to the, to the will of Jesus in the presence of Jesus, and then, you know, carry on then their, their, their married life together and with, with, that, with that, you know, kind of an understanding. So again, hopefully, you know, we've, we've shed a little bit of light on some questions here today. We've been able to um, make some sense out of some stuff and take advantage of the fact that got a lot more time on, on double-edged sword to talk about stuff than eight minutes in a sermon. Um, again, I am Father Fred Gatchett, and this has been the Double-Edged Sword Program on our fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KGDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, 89.1 KGOH Colby, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, and 88.1 KVDM Hayes. And we invite you, um, if you want to call the station or write the station, you can write us. You can get on the, on the Internet and find us at dv, that's V as in Victor, dvmercy.com. You can also call the station at 785-621-4110. And, um, and we can, you know, try to, if you want to have your ask the priest or stump the chump questions, and, um, and, and we'll, we'll get to them and answer them as best we can.
Also, again, we invite you to um, we to um, when you get on the on the pair on the on the radio station website, there's the all important donate button. Um, I donate to support Catholic radio and I hope you do, too. Um, I don't get paid for doing this. I wouldn't accept payment if they offered it to me. Um, we need to use these Catholic radio ways for evangelization and to bring other people you know, to our Lord. And so um, hit that donate button on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the website. And again, look for archived um, installments of the Double-Edged Sword program and the One Body program. Both of these are locally produced programs. There's not a whole lot of um, radio, Catholic radio stations in the United States, much less in little places like rural western Kansas that have two locally produced programs. Um, most of the Catholic radio stations use um, the programming that comes from Ave Maria Radio and or EWTN, which is great programming. Um, I listen to programming, I listen to Catholic radio all the time. Um, also, I would encourage you to really think about listening to Catholic radio over, at least in addition to what you're listening to with the other secular stations. And the reason, quite simply, is this. I caught myself on this, that if, and I'll just say it for what it is, and if people don't like it, I guess that's too bad. If you listen to MSNBC, CNBC, well, maybe not CNBC, MSNBC, NBC, CBS, ABC, so on, all the, all the various kind of mainstream um, um, radio stations, all they are is just mouthpieces for the Marxist movement in this country, all right? All they do, you they're not going to give you, the, you know, two sides of, of any story. Everything is always going to be, you know, towards the Marxist left. So you say, well, I'll listen to, you know, the the so-called conservative radio stations, you know, the, the patriot radio stations and things like that. Well, the problem with them, because I used to listen to them too, you listen to them, and basically all they ever do on those radio stations is say, oh, did you see what our opponent on the left did? If one of our guys on the right would have done the same thing, those media people would be apoplectic, okay? So just, you know, just to make it a little bit clearer, someone might say, oh, you know, President Joe Biden did such and such a thing or said such and such a thing. Can you imagine if Donald Trump would have said that same thing? You know, they'd, they'd be having kittens, okay? And see, that's all they ever do. If you listen to the so-called conservative radio stations, all they do is just gin up discontent by saying, you know, here, look at these people on the left, look how hypocritical they are, blah, blah, blah. But they never, they don't offer any solutions. They don't offer any way to, you know, solve the problem. And so... If you're listening to one, all you're getting is propaganda. If you're listening to the other one, all you're getting is an ulcer. And so that's why I think it's important to tune into Catholic radio, because if you listen to the morning programs, if you listen to Teresa Tamio in the morning, if you listen to Al Crest in the afternoon and, you know, people like that, Dr. David Anders in the afternoon and so on, these people, they're unapologetically, they're unapologetically Catholic. There's no question about that. But they are much more civilized and much more genteel about the way they present their their material and so you you can kind of listen to them and you know it's like well if then you'll you'll kind of definitely get the sense that if you were talking to them in person if they did and you didn't agree with what they said they would just say well we can at least part friends can't we you know like that but I think if you listen to most of the other mainstream media, you can't part friends. All they want to do is make enemies out of people. And so, um, again, that's why I just really encourage people to tune into Catholic Radio and um, at least make it a, a, a good chunk of whatever it, is whatever it is you're listening to. Because, again, I think on Catholic Radio, we, we present things in a much more balanced way and a, in a much more um, you know, fraternally friendly way, in a much more respectful way. So again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. This has been the Double-Edged Sword program here on, on Divine Mercy Radio here in, 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 in the northwestern corner of Kansas. We invite you again to tune in anytime and to um, visit our website if you have any other questions. And so we'll look forward to you on the next installment. So goodbye and God bless.